You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. We're not talking about the Shabbos tonight. Although, Shabbos is a... Um, ever-present, even uh, when we have a conversation about Pesach, because of course you know that Shabbat, that when we speak about Shabbat, we always mention the Exodus from Egypt. It's a recurring theme throughout the year, even when we, even when we talk about Shabbat, we're not always. There's something called Shabbat Breshit and Shabbat. Uh, there's the Shabbat of the seven days of the week, and where we reference the creation of the world. But curiously enough, when we make Kiddush on Friday night, we just we went and talked about Kiddush, right, on Friday night, and we talked about <coughs> we talked about um, the 70 words, right, the 35 words in, in each of them. So we know that um, the, this line is familiar to you, right? 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 So we say... Um, you know the melody. That's one thing. Then what? What is that? Right, we found it, right? We found it. Aha, we found it. What is that? How is Shabbat connected to to the Exodus from Egypt? I understand the first line, uh, right, uh, that it was Zecher Maaseb Reshit. It was a remembrance of the act of creation, where Shabbat is the weekly reminder of the renewal of, of the creation of the world, right? Something from nothing, or what it seems to be, the illusion of the creation of the world, um, from our perspective. But then all of a sudden it goes on and it says Zecher Maaseb. It says Zecher Mitzrayim. Which is a remembrance of leaving Mitzrayim. So, how, what does Shabbat have to do with the Exodus of Egypt? I have a theory. Okay, Rachel has a theory. It's just a theory. I've been reading labor law, and apparently, if you are a slave, mm-hmm. you uh, have no right to a day of rest. You have no right to Shabbos. And among the migrant workers in New York State, they have no right to Shabbos. Mm-hmm. So if we hadn't gotten out of Israel, we wouldn't have gotten the Ten Commandments, and it says honor the seventh day and keep it holy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's how they pilfer. I don't. It's just a theory. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's not. It's a good theory. It's actually not only is it plausible, but it's the right answer. Wow. <laughs> I think I better go home now, David. Yeah, you're batting. <laughs> that's good. Don't worry. I'm not giving them any more questions. Don't worry. You're safe. Yeah, at least three, three more. Max, Max, come on, Max, come on. <laughs> so, so obviously Shabbat is a was a radical invention. It was a radical in, in, in introduction of an idea. It trans. It was transformative. It's still transformative, and not enough, quite clearly. Um, but. Uh, the notion that that human beings, that part of what it is to be human, God teaches us part of what it is to be human by modeling 
a day of rest, and that we act when we work seven days a week, when we're always working, in some way we're less than, we're trying to, to be even more than God. So here, uh, the slaves were, we were working every day, and then Shabbat came along, the Exodus of Egypt came along and said that, that there's no, there's no, um, there's no one in, in, a, in Israeli culture, in Israel culture, not Israeli culture, but in the culture of the Bible, there isn't anyone that isn't uh, invited to a day of rest. That no, no human being can be so commodified, so uh, sold, that they sell their freedom on that level. And so Shabbat comes every week, not just to remind us about creation, but to, to remind us of of a cultural creation, which was Shabbat was. The world was created anew um, for these group of slaves <laughs> to remind us that Shabbat is the ultimate equalizer. It should be the ultimate equalizer. We should try to work for a day to some degree where where, where no one works at, in Ramadan on Shabbat. Right? Even people who work in the church maybe shouldn't be working on Shabbat, maybe. Obviously, it's up to them, for their prerogative, but it might not be our values, maybe. Maybe that's why we started it. Could be. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about volunteers, by the way. No, I mean, yeah. Do people work? Yeah. So anyway, so we're not talking about Shabbat tonight. We're talking about Pesach. So, but you see that they're connected. Everything's connected. So what are we going to say about Pesach? We have a week to prepare. And... Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Kabbalah of this time of the year, a little bit about the Kabbalah of the Seder itself, and some of the practices around the various ideas and, and objects around the Seder. So, um, at best, you'll, you'll, you'll be edified and you'll feel connected, and at, at, at least you'll have something fancy to say over at the Seder, <laughs> and, and wow people and say, like, you know, wow, I didn't hear that before, okay? So... You have to begin with the Pesach always begins on the first day of the month of Nisan and the month of Nisan. Let's talk about that. So the month of Nisan is the first month of the year and it is, it is essentially a, a new year. So it's, it's, it's Rosh Hashanah. So we just had Rosh Hashanah, it was Tuesday, last Monday night and Tuesday. It was Rosh Hashanah. It was the first day of the, of the Hebrew month of Nisan. So the number of the, the, it is the new year for, what was it the new year of? It essentially is the new year for the counting of months, which has significance um, in ancient contract law, <laughs> right? So if you wanted to sign a contract for your new apartment, you would write, if it was the second month, it and it was the, let's say, you wrote it to the to the year of the king, let's say. Let's say let's call Barack Obama king. So he's in his seventh year, right? Or no, his fifth year. Fifth year of his of his of his rulership. And once the second day of Nisan came, his the year was up and it became the second or it would be the sixth year or the seventh year. In other words, the demarcation line of a of a sovereign's rulership was given to the first day of the month of Nisan. It was called Rosh Hashanah Limlachim. It's the new it's the new year for kings. And it had 
contractual uh, ramifications. It had to do with writing a star, different uh, binding relationships within a given society that were dependent on using the king's rulership as a time frame. <clears throat> Everybody got that? Okay. It's not Rosh Hashanah for years, because Rosh Hashanah for years takes place in Tishrei. It only is Rosh Hashanah for the years of the king that are as stipulated in the in the contracts, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Complicated. They had they had a number of different. It's more like a civil. The fiscal year. It would be a fiscal year. It's kind of having a fiscal year. In other words, a year, an arbitrarily chosen. It's not arbitrary, but it's it is a circle within a circle, a year within a year with whatever where, it might be. Where do we learn that out that this is the contract area? It's that's the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. It's the first Mishnah Rosh Hashanah. I wrote Rosh Hashanah. Hey. And then the Gemara goes on to explain how they got these four Rosh Hashanahs, but it's a rabbinic construction. It might parallel, it actually might be an accurate description of the way it was, historically, but presuming that the rabbis were, were constructing it from the, as well. So there are three other ones. One you know, I said, which is Rosh Hashanah, as we call it, Rosh Hashanah, just Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, the seventh month of the year, Tishrei, and so on. Okay. There are two more. One of them is for trees, right? That's two Bishvat, right? And there's Rosh Hashanah for, for Behemoth and things like that. Okay. So, the word Nisan itself comes from the, from the Aramaic, Nes means to lift up, like a, like a flag, to be elevated, <clears throat> to be dignified. And in the Kabbalah, this, this month, the first month, is not just auspicious because of its connection to kings, but for the rabbis, that's a very mystical meaning, it's not, because we know what malchut means in this class, and malchut, which means kingship, has a, a different meaning Kabbalistically than just sovereign Barack Obama's, right? In a Kabbalah class, when you hear the word melech, or king, melech, um, it has a connotation, it has a specific resonance, it has a specific mystical meaning. So it's the new year for kings. We'll get to that in a second. So to be lifted up, to be dignified, it's the first month, and it is also, because it is the first month, it represents in Kabbalah the energy that is what's called or yashar, a straight light, light that is not a returning light, a light that is direct, a light that is clear, a light that moves from point A to point B. Point A in this meaning is God, and point B is earth, or terrestrial life, including human beings, the cosmos. But the, the point of energy, move, the movement of energy on Rosh Hashanah of Nisan, meaning the, the equinox, the spring, is the energy of, um, of grace. It's the energy of grace, of rebirth, of the world anew. It's the energy, obviously, of the spring It's the energy of a gift, not a return gift, a gift. There is an expectation. Every gift cycle in Kabbalah it has the exp- needs to be a cycle, not just a gift line. It's a gift cycle. So the expectation is, of course, that God gifts and we return the gift. But the energy is, without a doubt, moving from above to below. As the, that's the spatial metaphor used in Kabbalah from above to below, from the divine to the human. 
It's from the parent to the child is also the metaphor. It's of the the energy of um, of of free a gift given freely. Okay. So on on Pesach, the, the tradition has it that the um, that the Israelites in Egypt actually didn't deserve to be redeemed. That's the that's the traditional way of reading the story. Even though if you read the Bible, you don't get that at all, right? Like, <laughs> if you read the Bible, I, what do you mean they didn't? Re, re, what did they do? It's like they went down. Jacob went down. Uh, Joseph was already there. He brought his whole family to reunite with with Joseph. They were living in Egypt. And before you know it, you open the book of Exodus, the first chapter, and and all hell breaks loose. It's like, you know, they, they went from being 70 people to being a multitude. There are six, there are, you know, they become thousands and thousands of swarming insect-like slaves, right? And then, and then they're crying out to God. Like, there's nowhere in that story, if you read the Bible, you, you know, even if you, if you read it well, there's no, there's no sense of, of, that the Israelites did anything wrong. It's actually the fulfillment of the divine promise that was made to Abraham way back, way back in the book of Genesis, where Abraham, before Isaac and Jacob were even on the scene, where Abraham is told by God in a prophecy that your children are going to go down to Egypt and they're going to be enslaved and they'll be there for 400 years. So you're reading the book of Exodus, you're thinking, okay, it's just a fait accompli. This is exactly the way it worked. God prophesies and that's it. But in the rabbinic mind, the Israelites in the land of Egypt, at least in one thread, one trope, one way of reading the story, they had, they had basically hit rock bottom. I mean, talk about 12 steps. They were on the 49th level of impurity, according to the rabbis. There are 49 levels of impurity, and there are 49 levels of purity paralleling those 49 levels of impurity, and those 49 levels of purity are the days of between Passover and Shavuot, the 49 days and seven weeks, and we'll, and the Israelites will gradually, right, elevate themselves one step at a time from 49 levels below to 49 levels above. And <clears throat> they were on a very low level. And so for the rabbis, when they read this story, they read God's willingness to redeem them, redeem the Israelites, as an act of incredible divine love. In other words, you don't deserve it, but I love you. And that becomes the frame in the Kabbalah of what is called awakening from above. Awakening from above. People have heard this in many times, right? Awakening from above. An awakening from above. <clears throat> An awakening from above has moral and... It's a, it's a beautiful frame. It's a beautiful frame. Even if we can, to some degree, suspend our disbelief about whether God, that whole frame, whether God, we deserved it, we didn't deserve it, the, the notion of it is it's much broader than that. Every time your brain sends a signal to your foot and tells it to get out of the way of something or to move, that's an awakening from above. It's called downward causation. Information is given from a higher level of complexity to a lower level of complexity. 
in a feedback loop that includes the lower level of complexity's own causative input in, in a feedback loop. That's what a feedback loop. Your foot steps on a nail and signals to your brain that's upward causation. And good companies like Google have a healthy downward causation and upward causation model where creativity and innovation that is, quote-unquote, on the lower levels, right, just software programming, let's say, is what is responsible for Google's incredible creativity, like a, a bunch of guys, you know, chomping on HTML or, or just pushing stuff can actually create all kinds of amazing things that Google then puts out into the world. We have Google Docs. You don't have to actually have the software in your computer. You can do it anywhere. You can log on and have a Google Doc, right? That came from, like, a bunch of guys sitting in front of, you know, with some pizza <clears throat> and, uh, and uh, in between Facebook chatting, they came up with some brilliant ideas. And they made it all the way up to Sergey Brin and, and, and the rest of the Chevra because there's a much, a very flexible uh, downward and upward causa causative loop, right? They actually hear what's going on in the toes, in the brain. And the brain is giving good direction to the toes. So this notion in Kabbalah of an awakening from above and awakening from below has theological frame, right? God as the brain, knowing that the foot was in danger, not waiting for the foot's information, and sending a Moses character as the messenger, kind of like the nerve impulse is Moses, Dot, <clears throat> who mediates between the Moach, the mind, and the <laughs> which, is God, which is God, and then the feet, <coughs> which are the people. Now, in the theological model, again, we didn't really deserve it. You could easily see this as a much like um, as a, as a parental model or as a relationship model. There are sometimes, you know, when you love somebody so much, you love somebody so much, even when they don't deserve it, you don't want them to suffer. Halavai that our government had that, you know. That everybody had that feeling about a certain level of suffering that they won't, the government will absolutely not allow. I'm not sure what that level would be, given that so many thousands of people now are still still uh, uninsured, and so many thousands of people are are starving in our country, which is unbelievable. Just to think about the fact that in the richest country in all of history, there there are children that go to bed hungry. It's just unbelievable, and they still and they cut SNAP this year, which is I mean. So, like, there's not an awakening from above. That's the argument between, like, radical right-wing Republicans, essentially, which is, ain't no way we're giving anybody a free ride. There's no awakening from, a, from above in this country um, because the people who are awakened on behalf of whom we are awakening will take advantage of the brain. That's all they do, and they'll create videos and send them to the Daily News, who well, of course will publish it, because the Daily News will always publish anything you send them. And it'll just be of people stuffing containers with food that they send to the Dominican Republic and so on, which is, of course, ridiculous and whatever. But um, awakening from above politics would be, if, it, if extreme, without any demand, would be a kind of social welfare state that would be, that there's no need for you to do anything, because daddy and mommy are always going to bail you out. And that of course, it's a very dangerous model, right? But this model in the Kabbalah is that as a young child, 
every young child lives with an awakening from above. No child ever, ever, um, right, should have to, to, um, to validate their need for uh, parental love or for parental guidance or assistance, right? No two-year-old ever was given a test before they were given their dinner. Hopefully not. I mean, or maybe too many are, but they shouldn't be, right? That's a kind of a clear, right? Right? So there's the awakening from above model is a very beautiful um, way of thinking about the energy of Nisan. Now, contrast that awakening from above model, what's called itaruta mila'ela, an awakening from above, to the to a half a year later at the other equinox, right? You you arrive at the end seven months into the year, right? And seven months into the year, and you arrive at Rosh Hashanah, and it's exactly the opposite. Like the entire period of Rosh Hashanah has is has nothing to do with grace. It's all about uh, my uh, my hard work. I'm not going to show up on Rosh Hashanah and just say, God, hey, dude, like, you know me, I know you, we got, like, a deal. I'm your, you're my father, my mother, and I your son, daughter, and that's it. No, because I have to actually, I have to do the work. I have to do what's called awakening from below. Awakening from below is I have to go call the 1,500 congregants that I insulted, or uh, or the other synagogues that I insulted, or some other, you know, I have to call people and, and make amends and fix things that are broken. There's a shvirah, there's a brokenness, so I have to go do the work. That's what Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is all about, right? That's what we say at the end of the, the well-known prayer about who by fire and who by water. We say, Uchuva utfila utztaka, for, you know, repentance, <clears throat> prayer, and and charity, which means human agency. Me, I, I have to do the work, right? If God does, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it, right? <clears throat> now, some of you might be thinking, but wait a second, Ingber. I know that's the way you think of it. You guys go, Ingber. <laughs> Ingber. But there are images on Rosh Hashanah of the parent, right? Aren't there images of Avinu, Malkenu, um, Right, Avina Malkina, there is the loving parent image. So, <coughs> this is for all those in here who are parents. <laughs> you know, you know that as soon as your kid comes and says they're sorry, like you can be angrier than there can be so much karmic residue, and your kid comes and you're thinking, you know, that's it, that's the last straw, that's it, and they come in and they poke their head and they say and they start crying and I'm sorry, and then you know, like you're done. It's like your whole plans, they're, they're done, they're over. It's like you had the whole thing, you had, he's going to step on this, and I'm going to do this trap, and then it's going to you know, it's gonna be tied up, and then I'm going to put him away. It doesn't work. So, as soon as they say they're sorry, it's Gehendik, it's over. Right? Then it's all of a sudden, Avinu, Avinu, and they start crying, and you're done. Right? <clears throat> so, it's the awakening from below, then has a a causative relationship with the awakening from above. And so, and you see that also, by the way, in, in the Passover story, back six months earlier now to the Passover story where the energy is above to below, 
you know that in the story, if you read the story well, the first three chapters of the book of Exodus, that we don't really see God moving on behalf of the Israelites until they start catching a little bit. Right? They start catching a little bit. Not a lot. They just say, ouch. That's all they say, ouch. And that is what sets the whole thing in motion. <clears throat> it's not an awakening from below. It's just an opening that allows, in a sense, God to be present. So, if we take this a little bit out of the theological place, slightly, it's hard, not, it's hard to, but it's not, not so hard. Passover is a holiday of making an opening for grace to happen. That's what Passover is. And, and if you look at the entire Chag, if you look at the Chag, it, it gets its name from that place. Like, in order for the Israelites to be redeemed, after they begin and say, ouch, they have to take an action. And they take an action by taking the animal, they take the lamb, and so on, they slaughter it. But in some sense, it's essentially, they agree to participate in their own liberation. Because even if God wants, even if God wants to liberate us, he can't do it against our will. Even if God, even if God wants to liberate us, we can't, we can't be redeemed against our will. So we have to be willing to be redeemed. That's Pesach. We have to be willing to allow there to be something miraculous. We have to, we have to identify our resistance to the miraculous. That's another way to say it. Like, what in me, what in me won't allow the miraculous, and even if the miraculous, by the way, is not supernatural. By the way, I, when I say miracle, I don't necessarily mean supernatural miracle. I don't mean necessarily, like, uh, as Gemara says, turning, you know, vinegar into oil. I'm not talking, it doesn't have to be. You can believe in the supernatural, that's fine. I'm, 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 I'm on, on board with that. But I'm also on board with like resistance to the miraculous in whatever way you what you mean by miraculous. And part of part of the holiday of Passover is to say that we, the first step and maybe the most important step in reducing our resistance to God is simplifying our lives. That's the first step. Is that. The natural human tendency is to make life more and more complex as we become further and further away from God's presence. And at Pesach we take a stop and we and we slow down. And slowing down is, is everything. So you think that Pesach is about speeding up. Why do you think that? Because there's so much work, <laughs> because of the matzah. the matzah. What about the matzah? It's very fast to make it. Right, right. We didn't have time. It didn't have time to rise. So we were running out. In what, the Hebrew word for this, everybody, is called chipazon. Can you all say that? Chipazon. Not a great word. Chipazon. Don't use it in modern in Israel. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a biblical word, and it's almost never used in, in modern Israeli culture, the chippah zone. And it's the word used in the Bible to, 
to describe the state of consciousness of the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. They were bechipazon, like this, like, you know, like a lot of us are about, like now, because I'm traveling to Israel tomorrow, 7 o'clock, so I'm sure tonight at about 11, my wife and I will both be bechipazon. <laughs> we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we waited till now to, to pack, what's going on? I, didn't, I can't believe that doesn't fit in there, I thought it was going to fit in there. Is that like spilkis? Maybe. It's, a, it's cognitive spilkis, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a subsidiary state. It's there. But it, it definitely has an anxious vibe, right? Chippazon. So they were rushing out. They were terrified. But the, ironically, even though the original Passover had that element within it, future Passovers don't have anything actually fast about it at all. In fact... You can't get through the dinner quickly enough. Like, it's just, you're, you're so, people are going so slowly. In fact, it's, there's a big mitzvah, we'll get to this in a minute, to take your time to tell the story. When do we eat? Was, you know, it's probably a biblical term. Like, when, like, I mean, I grew up with my, my Papa Joe, and, you know, my mother's side of the family didn't speak, didn't have a word of Hebrew or any Jewish background. My mother's mother had a lot of Yiddish and Jewish background, but not her father. And that whole side of the family just had no idea what was going on. It was like a spectator sport. <laughs> so my father, I come from a very, you know, very religious home. And so my father, uh, you know, you had to finish everything on your Haggadah plate. Like, you had to finish everything. Like, there wasn't one exegetical moment where the rabbis... <laughs> twisted a word this way. We had to sing, and we sang it. We didn't just read it. We sang it only in Hebrew. So my my uh, Uncle George and my Papa Joe, my grandfather, both were uh, hard of hearing, uh, I mean, towards the latter part of you know their lives. And you could pretty much time it. Like at about 8.30, we, like, we finished the four questions, and my grandmother, my, my Nana Ellie, would start telling Joe to be quiet because he was talking out loud saying, what are they doing? You know, like, and he was yelling it. He was yelling because he's, he's hard of hearing. So at, at some point, they usually adjourned to some part of the house to watch TV, like, you know. And, and so it was a very weird house because, like, we were sitting with, my father had his uh, kittel on and, and it was very stark, meaning, like, very strong, very religious. And the boys, my brother and I were both, like, you know, sitting there like good boys reading and... And uh, and then my, all of a sudden, like my Papa Joe and my and uh, Uncle Georgie would get up, and they would leave, <clears throat> and we didn't see them again for like forty five minutes until the food. Then somebody come and get them, and then and then we would all say, "Oh, do we have to eat? Come on!" Like you know, the kids, we, the kids wanted to like to get into it some more, and then we, no, we have to eat, so we would stop and come back, and then they would go home, and then we'd spend the next three hours with the Seder. That was it. So, <clears throat> so. There's nothing on the Passover night that's slow, you know, fast. fast rather. It's all slow, and in, and in fact, there's even a story in the in the Agadah that many of you either read or gloss over about these five rabbis who were sitting in a place called Bnei Brak, and they were sitting the entire night talking about the Agadah until one of their students had to come and say, "It's time to go say Kriyat Shema." That's the story and. Where they, right, it's a beautiful story, like, and, and nobody really understands what it's doing in Nagadaz. It has to do with some seditious moment where they're plotting against the Roman Empire. They were part, you know, there's a lot of different 
interpretations. Why these five rabbis? What were they talking about? But you get the idea. It's, it's a long night. So there's something about um, slowing down. There's something about the way matzah makes you slow down. I'm serious. The way that you chew it. One of the reasons given for the matzah's name as poor man's bread is that it actually fills you up because you chew it so you have to chew each piece with such awareness that it actually fills you much quicker than bread does. And a poor man who didn't have a lot to eat would actually take a little piece, bite it, eat it, take his time eating it, and then put the rest away. So there's something about chewing on things slowly. <clears throat> each word, each sentence, each uh, moment in the Haggadah is a moment for reducing our resistance to the miraculous. And the most important way to do that is to slow down. Slow down. Every Jewish month has a four-letter name of God that is associated with the month. There are, um, there are 12 ways to permute four letters. Well, three letters that are... Anyway, four letters. yud heh vav is, is a four-letter name of God. And it's on Nisan that the four-letter name of God is actually arranged, yud heh vav According to the Kabbalah, it's alluded to in the verse, Yismichu HaShamayim V'tagela Aretz, the first four letters, Yismichu Yud HaShamayim Hei V'tagel Vav Ha'aretz. So there's something very beautiful about the, the arrangement of the divine name um, on in Nisan and on Pesach that has to do with... Um, things being aligned the right way. We'll stop there for that. Any questions? That was like a Kabbalah moment. Anybody? The word Pesach. Pe Samech Ches. Pe Samech Chet. Chet. Yeah? Pe Samech Chet. Pe Sach. The Ari, Isaac Luria said, the word Pesach, which is the word used for what? What does Pesach mean? It's translated as? Passover. Passover. Why, what does is, what is Passover mean? Why Passover? What passed over? What's passed over? Passover what? The angel passed over the house. Right? So, so the, so the passing over of the homes that, that had been, that have that, that have that mark. So it really means to jump over. To skip. <clears throat> skip. So, so many beautiful things about skipping. And Pesach is a holiday of dancing. The, the dance of God to jump over the homes is as if to say that all faith involves a leap. All faith involves, to some degree, um, a, a willingness to suspend what you don't know. That's what jumping is. When you, when you leap, anybody ever, ever, anybody ever do um, tarot? Listen carefully, okay? <laughs> I said tarot. <laughs> anybody ever do any tarot cards? So in the major arcana, the fool, obviously... 
<clears throat> so what number is the fool? Zero. Fool is, is before numbers. So the fool is on the level of ayin. The fool is on the level of 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 keter of ayin. The fool in the posture of the fool in, in that picture. Anybody? What's what's unique about the fool's feet? He has he has little wings. Yeah, or little his booties have. Yeah, he's got one foot on the ground and one foot off the ground. Right. The posture of 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 the fool is the posture of Pesach, of jumping, of skipping, of leaping into the unknown, of throwing blood on a doorpost and not knowing what will be. Right? It is, every dance is an act of faith. To have one foot suspended in midair and the other one, I mean, even better if they're both off the ground. Right? Because who, who knows if you're going to land? It's, it's an incredibly... Yes. Exclamation point. Max, I don't even need to, like, make the jokes. I can just, like, leave it. <laughs> At this point, Max knows all of my... <laughs> so, kfitza, to jump... <clears throat> Is, is, is to defy gravity. It's to, def, it's to defy a law. Every jump is an, a moment of antinomianism. It's like it's breaking the law. Right? Every, every time I jump, I break the law. I push up against what's pulling down. I say, um, I, 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 it's a radical break with the ground. And then we give in again, of course. Gravity will pull us down. That's an, it, there's an inevitability to that. But it's, there's something profoundly um, uh, um, faith that requires tremendous faith when we jump. And so to believe in jumps is to believe to some degree in the miraculous. Right to be a jumper is to believe it in to be a pos- is to be a pesach. Like that's what God said. God said, "Listen, even if you don't deserve it, I'm jumping over the normal way of things." Right? If you ju- if you believe too much in jumping, right, then you're not walking in the world. You're skipping steps. You skipped. You got to go back. But all of evolution happened with skips. <clears throat> Biological evolution. We don't. We don't know every, there's, there isn't an explanation for every, every mutation, every moment. There had to be creative skips. And our lives also are full of skips. Right? There are moments when we, where we say, I'm taking a chance. It's not supposed to work this way, but I'm taking a chance. <clears throat> I don't understand why I'm starting this business. My gut's telling me to do it. I don't know why I should trust you. I just met you, but I do. I don't know why, but my gut tells me it's true, it's right. That's an awakening from above. That's a, that's a jumping. That's a, that's a poseach. Right? I'm jumping over. So, 
That's one. Two. Mi zot olam inamid bar mit right mikapetz alegvaot midalegi alaharim mikapetz alegvaot. That in the Song of Songs, the way of, of um, you know, we read the Song of Songs. It's a tradition to read the Song of Songs on on Pesach night. After the people go to bed, Hasidim and Kabbalists will stay up and read eight chapters of the most erotic love poetry in the Bible. Not that there's a lot of erotic love poetry in the Bible. In fact, it's the only erotic love poetry in the Bible. But it's eight chapters worth of erotic love poetry. Because, <clears throat> you know, I married a couple yesterday, uh, Sunday, and they're young kids, 27 and 25. They've been, they met four years ago, and two years ago they got, they were engaged, a long engagement. Kids these days. And, <coughs> um, I asked them to write for me, and I said, please write some words about each other that I'm going to share with everyone. Because they were shy, they didn't want to really talk about themselves. I said, would you mind if I talk about you? They said, no, we just don't want to. So they wrote like a very, they wrote a page each. And um, and both of them said in it, um, Rabbi, we decided when we started to write it that we were going to give you the abridged version. Because we're a little bit embarrassed because there was too much to say. So we just have one page. So I read it and in both of them, they both said, at the end of the page they said, I love you more than words. And and these words are just um, just what came to mind. But the way that I love you is beyond any any words. They both said that. And when I was with them under the chuppah, I really felt that. And it became clear that, um, like, there's a kind of jumping over that in, that means not just that I skip steps, but that I already know the end in the beginning, and I don't, I can't articulate all of the in between pieces. There's a way that when I look at you, I see the beginning and the end all in once, in one kind of vision. And if I were to try to give you the A, B, C, D, you know, it's, it would ruin it. Can't, I can't. I try, I put it into vessels, but, and then I put them in and I see that they're silly, you know. Like they're, they're fingers pointing to the moon, but they're not the thing. So another meaning of this thing, this holiday is that it's a holiday of love. And that love always involves in a deep in a deep way, the ability to hold many things in a larger container than the individual small containers. That love like Carl Jung said this about a mother's love. He compared it to the moonlight. He said the moonlight of the mother is such that that she holds in a hazy blue light all of the differences in the family without there being in conflict. It's like her light can hold all of that. It's not the blaring light of the sun that distinguishes and differentiates. And there's something about the love that jumps, that, that encapsulates, that is the love also of, of Pesach. It's that I see all of you. 
Okay, time out. Questions? Comments? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. to talk, to converse. Have any connection? I'm getting there. Yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. I'm getting there. Anybody other any other question? Different question? Okay. So next. The word Pesach, not just as a jumping over, but Pesach as um, mouth that speaks. Pe, this is a playful misreading of the word, or I would say it's an oral, A-U-R-A-L, uh, um, construction of a word. The word is Pesachches. It means to jump over, to pass over. The Paschal lamb is the lamb that was used as a sign, right? Pesach, it refers specifically to the Paschal lamb, the, 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 and the, it was so called because it, it was the cause for the passing over. But in the 16th century, the Ari said the word Pesach can be read as pe, mouth, sach, that speaks, sichad means to speak, speaking mouth. It's a Native American name. Pesach, <laughs> mouth that speaks. Speaking mouth. Okay? So everybody, the word Haggadah means to tell a story. That's what we're telling. It's such a, it's such an unfortunate thing, by the way, that what, in so many ways, I think that what, what happened with Maxwell House. Like, Haggadah should, it should be an evening of telling a story in a creative way about, about liberation, about something, it's actually very unique Jewish story. It has very uh, universal application. Right? Every single one of us knows a story about uh, some exodus and some liberation story. And it almost always has to do with the, the story itself as part of the liberation. Like telling the story that is the story is the performative act that free human beings engage in when, they, when they're free and they look back and they tell the story. Like, every one of us has a Seder whenever we talk about an illness in the family, or a death in the family, or how we grew up, or how we left the Bronx, or how we left, the, you know, Brooklyn, or Israel. I mean, we all have a story. We all tell a story. It has a middle, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a, a narrative arc. Those of us who tell the story professionally, like me, uh, learn to tell it, you know, in different ways, in different contexts, but all of us tell the stories differently to our friends and to our family. We all tell stories. And the quintessential, the quintessential Passover moment after the, after the Exodus, right? After this, the, the, uh, killing of the, uh, the, uh, ritual slaughter of that animal is to tell the story. The Torah itself tells us to tell the story. Right? You have to tell the story. What becomes known as Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, the story, Sipur, S-I-P-P-U-R, Sipur, Exodus of Egypt, the story of telling the Exodus. So there are more Haggadot than there are of any other book of Jewish literature. What's uh, more interpretations, more commentaries, more co- uh, uh, editions. Every year there are twenty or thirty new ones, right, and so on. You have ones for 
You have American ones, that, and you have uh, African American ones. You have ones that are feminist. You have ones that are Israeli. You have ones that are Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Hasidic, Lithuanian. You have artistic ones. You have virtual ones. You have ones that you make them on your own. You can do it yourself. You can you have all these agadot, and they all have one. They are all a kiyum, a, a, a fulfillment of the mitzvah to tell the story. And how few people tell the story with all of these stories? That's the uh, the great irony of Passover. We sit at the table and we have somebody else, we read somebody else's words about a story. Instead of telling the story. Like, what was, what was it like? Let's go look it up. Let's play it out. So who's going to play Pharaoh? Who's going to play... And so I'm sure some of you have creative satyrs, I'm sure. But it's super vital. It's super important. And the, the, the point of Pesach is that the rabbis understood that stories, and the way that we tell stories, or another way of saying that is history, history is um, is not an objective, empirical fact waiting for all of us to discover, but an interpretive art form. And the we can say without any doubt that, that the Bible gave, bequeathed to the West, what we now consider to be historical consciousness. That is a uniquely Jewish gift. And we realized that when we told the story, we could actually change the story in the way that we told it. And if we changed the way that we told the story, we could also change our experience of what we went through. That the simple act of retelling a story is not just a retelling of facts like you're in a courtroom. That we are co-constructors of the very stories that we relay. And that's Pesach. It's the mouth that speaks. And remember I said that Nisan is the Rosh Hashanah for kings? Remember that? Limlachim. Mm-hmm. And remember I said that this, the Malchut has a specific connotation for all of us here as Kabbalists? It's the, high, it's the Rosh Hashanah for kings, but for Kabbalists it means for kingship itself. In Kabbalah, the quality uh, that is associated with speech is Malchut. And the feet. Remember, it's the lowest part in the sfirot. It's the keter, arms, torso, malchut is the feet. But it's also speech, because speech is the way that manifestation happens in, in the creation story. God speaks, and God's kingship is manifest through God's speech, speech act. So God's speech is, 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 as it were, God's feet. In other words, the, the final act of production is called malchut. And so, malchut, kingship, in Kabbalah, means to bring something from nothing to something, from, from, act, from potential to the actual. And speech is the quintessential creative act in Judaism, tantamount to walking your talk, literally. In Judaism, it's talk your walk and walk your talk, because talking is real in Judaism. It's not just walk your talk, but talk your walk. And on Pesach, it is, of course, the month that is associated with kingship and kings because we all speak. And we speak the world into being through stories, through affirmations, through, through that creative act. So the Haggadah is the ultimate expression. Uh, it, is, it is a Bible of sorts. You know, the Bible says that God spoke and the world came into being, but in the Haggadah we'd say, we speak and the Exodus comes into being.
So of course it begins with questions. That's the, the Haggadah has to start with questions. It has to start with um, using speech to un, to un know certainties. All right, let's take a big deep breath, everybody, all right? Oh, I gotta move, I gotta move. It's already 7.58. Okay, okay. Yes, go ahead. So, I, I'm, I'm kidding, because so it was supposed to go slow, it's slow. I'm gonna say something that may be blasphemous, but how do we know the original story? You know, you tell a story, then you tell the story about the story. How do you know that, going all the way back, how do you know the original story is the truth, or that is the myth? That's that's exactly the point. We don't care. It doesn't matter. You just tell the story. It doesn't really matter if it was true or not. In fact, the rabbis didn't care if it was true. Like the rabbis in the Haggadah are going to say that there were 250 plagues. Remember that part of it? Because there were 10 plagues. But then it says that, right, it says God's outstretched, outstretched arm and there are um, there are five fingers, and each finger was ten plagues. I, I forget how it goes. Right? Something like that. I don't remember the exegesis. 250. You, now, do you, do you think that the rabbis really thought that 250 plagues? Maybe. Maybe they did. Or maybe they're trying to point out something about Midrash, which is that it, it's, it's not about... Midrash is not history in the way that we try to imagine history. It's, a much, it's a, a much larger endeavor. That's why the Haggadah is so, it is so invested in the rabbinic way of learning. Like the Haggadah is, is the Haggadah is almost, it's competing almost, right? It's the second century. Competing with Christianity. It's competing with a certain way of, of looking at the world Um that would denude it of this kind of this midrashic uh, interpretive lens. The, the rabbis were want the rabbis want you to do midrash. So we'll stop there. You don't have to do midrash. You can have a Buddhist seder if you want. But I'm just saying the rabbis wanted it to be midrashic. When you say midrashic, when you say creative Passover, do you mean that we tell our own story or just this story? When you say creative, well, both. I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. So, it isn't, I think a Seder that doesn't have a historical kernel to it, meaning my people are the people that came out of Egypt. That's like bare bones level. That's like the, the that's, that's entry level. And then there's also, this story has been a formative story for all of Western culture. So, as a Christian, this is a story that speaks to me also. As a, as a you know, as an American, it's part of my own ethos. Um, I think there are, there are stories within stories within stories, and it would be nice to be able to tell each of the stories. But of course, Alina is alluding to another piece that we have to discover now, which is, In every generation it is incumbent upon us to see ourselves as if we, as if we left Egypt ourselves. So that's the imperative of making the, the Passover Seder personal. Right? If you just leave it at, well, there's a group of, a band of, there might or might not have been a band of, of slaves called Ibrus or Ibirus, and they lived in, at, during, you know, in the, in the third 
reign, you know, of, of king, whatever. It, it, it won't, it won't, it, it won't be personal enough. So, of course, every seder should have an element of of asking personal questions and not too personal problems. Depending, you know, you have to know your audience, but making it personal. Like you could ask simple things like, since last year, have you been? What was your Egypt since last year? And and what was it that got you out? It could be simple things like, um, um, <clears throat> you know, that the sky's the limit with these things. You know, it can be simple. It can be simple um, <coughs> examples of um, who's your Pharaoh, right? Who's your Pharaoh? Who's who's Moses for to you? How did you get to Egypt in this particular iteration, right? You know, there's so many beautiful midrashim about how how the Israelites were completely comfortable before they became slaves. It's like a classic story of like it happened unconsciously, right? So you can ask you can ask guests to say, you know, are there places in your life where you feel yourself sliding into an Egypt, like that, where you you need to wake up, or um, what are the conditions of your slavery? Are you know some people are, are slaves in in comfort? How is comfort a kind of slavery? There's so many ways. I mean, it obviously, again, once you start to use the form of the story to talk about social issues and talk about race issues and talk about existential issues, I mean, there's no end. Because this is a universal story of, of forgetfulness, slavery, and then remembrance. And it is perfect for, for those who are involved. There's a... Of course, in miracles, Haggadah, there's also a Buddhist Haggadah, there's all, it's, it's, it all lends itself to that. That's the beauty of this universal meal. Scott. Remember, uh, Andrew, Andrew Gaines had an interesting insight. He said, imagine yourself an inanimate object. Tell the story. Mm-hmm. And tell the story from the point of view of the inanimate <clears throat> Yeah. Take the, the human take, 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 Imagine yourself during the story from an inanimate object's perspective. Like a stone being picked up by, 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 by a slave, or and so on. It's also a psychological symbolism to bondage. Of course. So, the, um, so all mythology is metaphor, right? So the coming out of slavery doesn't have to be uh, territorial. Of course, that's what I'm saying. So existential, it can be psychological, spiritual. On whatever level, right? There's, there are many, many levels for all of these symbols. There are many, many levels. So the Pesach sacrifice is a symbol. It's, now, I just want to move now from Pesach to Matzah to Maror, and then some other little things, okay? So the Pesach sacrifice itself, which they'll raise, you know, the shank bone. Well, we've talked about this. This is on the... On the... On the national level, you guys can work with it. It's whatever, whatever it needs to be sacrificed in order for us to be free. What needs to be lifted up and may be made visible, but, but also needs to be let go of. What can't come with us? Right? What, what are we not going to take? We're not taking the lamb. And more deeply, it's also something that we're afraid of. We talk about this every year. The Paschal Lamb represents something that we're afraid of. 
It's the God of Egypt. So you ain't getting out of Egypt if you're not gonna if you can't look at the God of Egypt and slaughter it. That's just the fact. And nobody's gonna do it with you know, you have to do it yourself. And it also represents um, <clears throat> it also represents God's outstretched arms, ra'at, like the outstretched the possibility of liberation. But the Buddha would say like the, the that cessation of suffering is possible. Vasco's offering is the faith that that yeah, you deserve to to be redeemed. The matzah. <clears throat> How do you build a vessel for liberation? How does one build a, how does how does one build a vessel for yeah. liberation? It, it, it's a very good question, but it depends on it depends it depends where you are, what your circumstances because are. My favorite, one of my favorite in the is uh, in Tarona, uh, make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in them. It's not among them, it's in them. The tochan is in, right? So that, is, so that sanctuary is in each one of us. How, how do we build that sanctuary? So how do we build that vessel so that we can become liberated? Well, the first thing is you have to believe that, that you can build a vessel. The second thing is that when you build the vessel... Um, it almost always has to do with a sense that um, of being pre of preparing ourselves to receive something and to hold it. Preparing, it, ourselves. preparing ourselves to receive something and to hold it, and psychologically, it means that preparing ourselves with a sufficient level of of inner fortitude that we deserve. And by that, I don't mean the ego. I mean that I'm not going to spit out what's being poured into me. So in other words, I can hold this. I, I deserve this. This is, this, this is something that... Um, because I'm made in your image. I mean, it's, it, it comes down to fear almost always. The, the, the vessel has to be... It has to be clear of fear. The clear fear. When there's fear... Then whatever, when when we receive some goodness or some something alive, something that is that is that is full of light, when there's fear there, we push it away. <coughs> fear acts as an antibody. <coughs> so, the kind of inner cleansing to receive light has to do with noticing constriction and contractions that have to do with fear, and what the fear is related to. That's usually where it is. Almost all vessel construction has to do with building, using love to weave light. And when love is present, then fear is diminished. Right? When love is fully present, then fear is diminished. So you build vessels with love, and then you hold the vessels with fear. <clears throat> Meaning, with with a with a kind of um, not not fear that pushes away, but a kind of 
a structure, a sense of, of inner, inner integrity. That's called year. That's the good year. So, matzah is, is a good segue because matzah is matzah is the, is the most important of the vessels for the for the chag. Matzah is the most important vessel to be like matzah, to become matzah. <coughs> so matzah is simple, unadorned. It's only it's only flour and water. It requires a minimum amount of time, 18 minutes, let's say, for it to, to become matzah. It, um, it's, in Taoism, there's something called the 70% rule. Anybody ever hear that? Mm-hmm. In American Taoism? Find whatever 100% is and go, b- and, and then back off to 70, and that's the, that's the place you should work in. <laughs> if it's a stretch, if it's, whatever it is, the 70% rule. So matzah basically stops at 18 minutes and says, I'm not really interested in being bread. <laughs> I could go a couple more minutes, you know. I become bread, but not interested. I'm going to be matzah. I'm going to be simple. Matzah is um, called in, in, the, uh, in the Zohar the bread of faith. It's michla de hemnusa. The hemnusa is the faith bread. Because it requires, again... It required, um, it's a little bit that goes a long way. It didn't need additives. It feels, it feels enough. It's dayenu. It's the bread of dayenu. It's enough. It doesn't need honey. doesn't have sugar. It's just, it's just, I mean, it didn't need chocolate until people came and started putting chocolate on it. Lots is amazing. How many people like matzah? I love seeing people love matzah. Matzah gets such a bad rap. It's not. It's like it's constipated. You're stuck, and you get too much of it. And da-da. a little matzah with cream cheese, and then you're heaven. A little bit of butter, a little bit of matzah brai, right? It wakes matzah brai. Come on, matzah brai. All right. Here's a question, though. Matzah briars. Sweet or, sweet or salty? Salty. Oh. Salty, yeah. Who's the sweets? Sweet Judy, Scott, Deborah. Nice. We have a scrambler pancake. Ah, yeah, bubbleach. Matzah, matzah pancakes are called bubbleach. In my house, at least. Bubbleach. Bubbleach. Yeah. What happens to the 18? Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Huh? Apparently. Okay. So matzah, so matzah is, with, notwithstanding all of these amazing things that matzah can be used for, including some other less uh, glorious things like doorstops and things like that, <laughs> um, matzah is, matzah is beautiful. It really is. Matzah is, um, it's also called the healing bread, the bread of healing, the bread of healing, because um, essentially matzah is. Both present as poor person's bread and rich man's bread. It represents poor bread because, I said before, it's poor itself because it doesn't have anything added to it. It's simple, it's unadorned. In Kabbalah, it becomes the egoless individual. The one who doesn't have to puff themselves up like bread to be seen, to be noticed, to be where they are in the world. 
It's just me. Just bread and water. Just flour and water. A little bit of time. It's the wealthy man's bread because it's the bread that we ate <clears throat> when we were free. It's not just the bread that we ate when we were slaves. It's the bread when we're eating when we're free. When we take our time eating it. So matzah is um, is the is the is basically the heart of the child. It's the transparent heart of the child before it grows up. It's it's what you were before it, you were told you were to be. <laughs> that's what matzah is. And that's why at the Seder, the most important moment, everybody, and this this you should tell all your guests. And say and you can say it in my name, you can say it in the name of the Kabbalah, it doesn't matter, but tell, let them know that the the fifth stage, so it's Kadesh Urchatz Karbas of the fourth stage, Yachatz, when we break the matzah. That breaking of the matzah is the most important moment in the, in the Seder. You can't tell the story unless you tell it over a broken matzah. That's the, the Talmud teaches that. Like, so we wash our hands, Kadesh. Or, uh, make a, uh, I'm sorry, Kadesh is we make Kiddush. That's the first stage. Then Urchatz, we wash our hands without a blessing. Then Karpas, we eat uh, parsley or a potato or some vegetable that grows in the ground. And then, before we get to the Manishtanan, the four questions... We take the tray of, uh, with the matas on it, which is all Kabbalistic, by the way. All ten of the Sfirot are on the tray. The three matas represent the three mind states, Chochmah, Bina, and Das. And we take the middle matzah, and we, we, we cut it, in, uh, not in half. The bigger piece is hidden, and the smaller piece stays for Hamotzi. And so... That breaking of the matzah, the Gemara says, you can't begin to tell the story, whatever the story is, your psychological story, your existential story, your natural story, your Jewish story, your Christian story, your Buddhist story, whatever story of liberation you're going to tell, has to be said over broken bread, broken matzah. And the simplest reason for that is you can't begin to tell the story until you at least acknowledge that your heart was broken. You can't begin to tell a story of brokenness without first saying, we were broken. You can't tell a story of degradation in the illusion of dignity. Right? So it's like we had to admit, it's the first step, we had to admit that we were powerless. That's the first step. We had to break the matzah. I like to think that the breaking the matzah is actually where the words come from. I sometimes tell the people that the words were inside the matzah and now they're going to come out. <laughs> yes. And of course, you all know, as students of, of students already in this, you know, um, that the the broken matzah should immediately, whenever you hear broken anything, you should think of what the broken tablets. Very good. What else? Broken vessels. It's a broken vessel. This is the this is the the ultimate Lurianic myth. The world. We're about to tell a, a, a creation story, a creation of a people. So we first say the vessels were broken first. We broke the vessels. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, and now it's broken. And then we are we are fixing the matzah with our story. That's what we're doing. We're fixing the matzah with our story. A story that that mends broken matzah, that mends broken wholeness. 
So that would look like so many things if we were to really take it seriously. Like, in, in theory, here's an idea, you know, I was just thinking about, like, what would it be like if you brought to your Seder three social ills? Three social, I mean, of a thousand. Three. And you laid them down, and when you broke the matzah, you said, in addition to these, this broken matzah, here's the broken matzah that we live with every day. Right? And then if you wove... Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Because you gave the awakening from below. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then during the Seder, you actually gave some suggestions for a new narrative. What would it look like if... You know, and you actually wove a story. And let's say you wanted it not to be too politically charged. Let's say you chose something that everybody could get on board with so that everybody at your table, like, agreed. And you agreed that it, it could be really a dream. You didn't have to restrict yourself to being realistic. Let's say you wanted, I want a dream. What would it be like if X, Y, and Z? This is how we got there. This is how the world got where it is, this way. And here's the way we could reconstruct it, maybe. So by the time you eat the dinner and or eat the, you know get the matzah back, you have uh, some healing ideas and you leave inspired. You don't just leave like with a good exit story or a good like uh, kvetch, which is also something. So I want to say that the that you should all when you say that the achats, the fourth stage is the most important stage. Also, make sure to mention. That of course the, the custom has arisen amongst uh, our people. That who finds the matzah? Children. 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 Do I have to say anything else after that? I say that every year. That's the most beautiful thing in the world, right? That that adults we we're too busy telling the story, and the kids are the ones who find the afikoman, and that's the way it always is, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if you don't have kids at the table. Just imagine that you're the kids. Um, so the last thing... Huh? So you ask which adult is the youngest? I like that. Which adult can, 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 can bend down to reach it from the floor? We're, getting, we're lowering the bar. Huh? Right, that's true, that's true. So where are we now? So we're up to Maror. Maror. So most in most communities, Maror is, is romaine lettuce. That's the that's the that's the um, the Mishnah says that's the desired Maror is is romaine lettuce. In my house, growing up, we always used horseradish and a big root, and we shaved it, and we had yep. little pieces. But that was more because my dad liked to cry like that, like that. He loved the, you know, this is like his favorite moment in the, in the Seder. And I, I also love it because he wanted to cry, he wanted to cry. So, but the reason romaine lettuce is used is because it's sweet when you bite into it and then gets bitter in the aftertaste. That's, purportedly, that's the reason. And that's the way of the slavery of the, of the Israelites, that it was very sweet in the beginning. They were royalty. People will often talk about Germany in this way, but how it was for Jews in Germany. How they didn't see it coming, although they, they did. Or should have. They did. So, there's something about um, sweet bitter. 
Not bittersweet, but sweet bitter. If you read, um, <clears throat> if you read Buddhist accounts of suffering, or or the arising of suffering, or the construction of suffering, the way that we uh, create suffering, and if you also go back, harken back to Greek notions of uh, of desire, of eros. One thing is clear is that there's a, a very deep connection between eros and uh, desire and suffering. And it usually has, uh, the, it, it follows sweet bitter. That there is, um, there is embedded within every sweet bitter, there is the production of suffering. Because sweet is what satisfies and bitter is what makes us want more. So sweet is what satisfies desire, or ends desire, and bitter is what um, reclaims desire, or reignites desire. In other words, we have desire filled, and then it's lacking. Without lack, desire would no longer be. And so desire needs lack, or it needs remainder in every experience in order for it to be perpetuated. And so suffering has at its root <clears throat> a positive that becomes a negative, that then becomes a positive, that becomes a negative, in an unending cycle of fulfillment and, and lack. Fulfillment and lack. And so maror doesn't just represent the national suffering of a given people historically or geographically, it represents the condition of all slaves to form and matter, which all of us are. And um, it, it, it represents a description of reality, of, the, of, of, of what it is to be a slave, and that all of us are slaves. We are all, to some degree or another, slaves. Even if we're free, we're slaves. That's why the Torah says there's no the truest free person is someone who is involved in learning Torah. Another way of saying that is spiritual practices are liberating. So that you can be a slave and be free. And you can be free and still be a slave. So Mara is teaching us all of these things. That we were once slaves, that we are sometimes still slaves, that it's bitter. And so on. My roar. <clears throat> okay. That was fun. Um, it's like a light show. <laughs> so, um, what, what else? Who wants, who wants to ask a question? Because it's, it's already late. It's 825. Who wants any questions? Well, I have a question. First you said we weren't deserving. And then it was like we are deserving. When did I say we were deserving? That God just came from above and gave us yeah. this. We weren't really deserving. Exactly. That's the, that's the Kabbalistic idea. And when did I say we were deserving? Later you said, we deserve to be free. We deserve, somewhere recently you said, you know. I said that we opened up an opening okay. by putting the, the blood on the doorposts. Okay. Well, why weren't we deserving? Because we need... Well, I, I, I also said that in the beginning that... Um, <clears throat> I don't know why they created that construction. 
I, I, I mean, that would be a much broader conversation. I, I'm not saying that I, I'm not saying this is the way it was. Mm-hmm. Saying this is the way that they're telling this spiritual truth, which is that grace is possible, and they're using the Passover narrative and story and reading into it in order to produce this truth, which is Passover is the holiday of awakening from above, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur awakening from below, and those are two truths that that live within the Jewish spiritual landscape. And, you know, we could speculate why why they claimed the Israelites were not worthy. It could be a way of actually getting around God's uh, uh, culpability for not having saved them. They were, they were 400 years enslaved. And what was God waiting for? So one way of, of avoiding that would be to blame the victims. It could be that they had another tradition that said that they, that the Israelites, you know, there are later traditions that say that the Israelites were, were even worse idolaters than the Egyptians were. Assimilation. Yeah, it could, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, again, it could be used by every generation to use it in their own way. I'm not trying to say that we weren't deserving, but Pesach is the archetype of when we're not deserving and we get it anyway. That's what it is. And you can think about that. I mean, like, just to be, a, to, be, to be born in the United States, it's like, what did I do to deserve to be born in the United States? I could have been born in, Bang, you know, in, in Bangladesh or in some other part of the world where, who knows? I mean, not, nothing wrong with Bangladesh. I'm saying I, I could have been born in, in, in so many ways. In so many, and I was born a, you know, a nice... Up, you know, upper middle class white guy, and and I'm so lucky. And medicine is available. And medicine is available, and I have food on the table, and all of my I have. We all have sorrows, but wow, wow, wow! And of all places in the United States, I mean, I'm thank God on the East Coast. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, questions, comments. I, any part of Passover you guys want me to talk about quickly? Think, say, think of something. Come on, you have me. Charoset. You say charoset. Charoset is it, it. It represents the bricks. It's made in so many different ways with the seven different species of of that are indigenous to the land of Israel. It's made with Sephardi, Ashkenaz. I mean, there's you name it. Everybody has their own haroset recipe. In Kabbalah, it represents the ultimate chesed, loving kindness, and it's placed on the maror in a process called the sweetening of judgments. The sweetening of judgments. Hamtakas adinim. That the maror represents. Like I once did, a, I once did a zen. I did a zen seder. Zader, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Zader, I don't know. And it's, uh, they were on a week-long session. They were on a week-long uh, silent retreat in uh, Brooklyn, the Fire Lotus Temple. And my friend uh, Sam Feinsmith and I did a Seder. And so they were really in it. Like for them, like they were, it was a, a ritual meal like it, in a way that I would dream of doing when I don't have, you know, when the kids are growing up and, and when it's not 200, it, 200 people who agree to do a silent Seder would be amazing. It would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
Right. So, so that the, the, the silence seder would be that silence maybe for the ritualized moments, and that when we do actually do the story, we do it in a way like we would figure out a way. There would be singing. It could be like a silent seder with with ritualized storytelling, you know, which was inviting people to go inside to find various places, and we, you know, had 12 different moments of the Seder, of the, of the Exodus narrative, and each person is invited to meditate on it. But when they ate the, the, the Maror, like, they were thinking of not just their own suffering, and not just the suffering of the Jews, but of all sentient beings. And when they dipped into the Charoset, they were imagining all of suffering, all of it. You know, every child, every tear, every moment being sweetened by this this elixir, this tartar, this arosa. And in that it becomes a kind of communion. Right? It is it is a kind of taking in communion <clears throat> and imagining these symbols. And you're ingesting the symbol and you're and you're trying to effectuate not just in your own consciousness but in consciousness in general. The greatest imaginable healing for the planet. A nice thing to think about. Mm. Instead of just like, wow, good walnuts. You know? yeah. <laughs> Aren't the Waska said Kairosis? <clears throat> song of songs. Yes. <clears throat> yes. That's Arthur's thing. And he's right. He's right. All right, anything else? A comment. Okay, Brian. Yeah, where do you start? So the, it's interesting. I mean, as an architect, when you build something, you start with the outside, and then you get to the inside later. The Mishkan was first, and then everything else sorry, came after. I'm hard of hearing. I can't hear you. Okay. The, when the Mishkan was built, okay, that's what was the starting point, was the center, not the outside. That came much later. And in architecture, you build the outside first, and then you do the inside. So you have to start in the center. Right. Jessica Kate Meyer gave a beautiful directory about that a couple of months ago, about starting from the inside first. You're build, building community from the inside out, <clears throat> building a vessel from the inside out. No? <clears throat> so, um, the Regina Rebbe, one of the, one of the great Rebbe's, <clears throat> Next, uh, I guess, month's Pesach, next Monday night. So next Sunday night. Next Sunday night is, is, uh, is the, it's the custom to look for chametz in your house using a candle and a feather and a spoon. Mm-hmm. People know this? It's called oh, yeah. the Bidigat yeah. Chametz, the search for chametz. You can find a kit. They have these, they sell the little kits in the, the West Side Judaica. It's like for a buck fifty or something, two bucks. <clears throat> Essentially, the custom was to take uh, 10 pieces of bread or 10 pieces of chametz, leavened products. could be a bagel, could be Entenmann's cookies, it could be whatever. And, uh, and put them into, uh, into a Ziploc bag <clears throat> or into tin foil and to place them strategically around the house. And then to go and use a candle. Candle because candles could get into places that uh, in that day, before the advent of iPhone flashlights and so on. You uh, a candle will uh, can get into the little nooks and crannies, 
in a way that, um, you know, you couldn't do it by the light of day. It's better to do it at night, in the darkness, use a candle. But it's also because a candle is, is usually used as a metaphor for the soul. And so the candle both represents literally using a candle, but figuratively also to check for chametz using our soul. And so, uh, you know, <clears throat> so it's customary to put out ten little pieces of something, one for each sphere. And my wife and I and others I know have a custom also of writing on a piece of paper ten different things that we want, we'd like to burn <clears throat> from our lives. We put them in together with, with, in the tin foil. And then um, we go around the house and we um, we stop and we remember where we put them and we stop and we say a little prayer before each one. And we scoop them up. And then the next morning we burn them. And uh, all over the Upper West Side you'll find, in various synagogues you'll find, Ajay Chesed I'm sure we'll have on the street. Literally on the street, there'll be like the cops will, will cordon off an area and you can burn your chametz. Wow. <clears throat> You'll, on here on 91st Street, the Young Israel, it'll be the whole morning, on Monday morning, there'll be a lot of chametz burning. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a thing to burn the chametz. You don't have to burn all of your chametz, just those 10 little things. Um, if you can't burn them, you can flush them down the toilet, right? Or you can throw them in the garbage. Um, there's something about fire, though, that's that's a very important transformative element in an alchemical process. There's one Hasidic Rebbe on the night when he was doing what's called Bedikas Chametz, when he had finally scooped up the last piece of Chametz, he turned to his sexton and he said, uh, he said, do you think we're finished? And he said, yeah, Rabbi, Rebbe, we're, we're finished. And he said, no, we're not. And he said to him, bring the candle close, and he opened up his shirt, and he said, now look in here, look inside my heart. So that's really the process, right? That's the process of, of looking inside of an inner cleanse, right? Not just the outside, which is why Romamu is not having any email, because email is a modern equivalent of something that you that gets stuck in it. It's like everywhere, and you can't get rid of it. So email, no email at Romamu for eight days. And I'm going to be off email also. I'll be in Israel. I mean, the land of Israel. But I want to bless all of you with, um, as they say, azizin, which means a joyous azizin and a kosher Pesach. should be a kosher Passover and joyous. You know, there are three There are three kinds of vessels. In, in uh, <coughs> There's earthenware. <coughs> bless you. There's metal and there's glass, right? So... And earthenware, when something that's earthenware gets is uh, is not kosher for Passover, there's nothing you can do about it, right? You can't you can't kosher earthenware. It absorbs everything in such a way that the only way to the only thing you can do with it is you break it. You have to break it. It's like you know, if you eat not kosher, you have a you have a milk you have a milk bowl and you put chicken soup in, which happened to us last week when I was sick. You can't do anything. It was boiling hot soup and it was. It, that's the way it goes. We had to throw it. We had to break it. Then there's metal, right? And how do you get? How do you kosher metal? Anybody know? Right. So there's a the halacha says that the way that it came in is the way that it goes out. Right. 
So if, if it's burned in, if you use fire, libun, you have to use fire to get it out. If you use boiling. And then there's glass. Which glass is? Doesn't absorb anything. So the law is with, with glass is that you just have to wash it and it's good. So there are a lot, you know, every person is like a little bit like these three categories. The Rebbe said. I didn't say this, the Rebbe said. But some of us, <clears throat> some of us, we get to a place in our lives where we've absorbed so much schmutz and there's no recourse for us except to, to break it. Like me, I'm so schmutzy this year. And this week I got so, I, I broke, my whole system broke down. I got so sick. So then you got it, it's broken. Now I got to, I have to, I got to go fix it. And a lot of us are not there. A lot of us are in a place where, you know, we absorb it, but we're still there. We can get it burned out. <clears throat> we can purge it. And what we want to be is we want to be in a place where we're glass. We're so transparent that we'd be kosher all the time. We wouldn't need to have such extreme measures in our lives in order to find balancing. So God should bless each and every one of you with being able to, to find a way to be simple the next uh, when Pesach comes. And that in addition to the great seders you go to and the great teachings you hear and the great food that you eat, that you also have a moment where you feel grace, you feel blessed, and that you're able to ask the right questions that will be the questions that will remind you of a story that, that's your story. That's a story that's your particular unique story that no one else can tell. And that at least at one moment, <clears throat> you feel somebody was able to hear your story so that you could have a taste of liberation. I wish that for all of you. Amen. Amen. Amen.